The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. It's time to open the scriptures together. We have been for a number of weeks and months now spending time in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. So let's go together. We are turning to chapter 7 this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Our text begins on page 556. So if you don't have a Bible, reach forward and grab one from the pew rack to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Uh, I have been very transparent with you along the way through Ecclesiastes that uh, Ecclesiastes is a very challenging book uh, both to read and a very challenging book to teach and preach. And I have to give you a little bit of insight, uh, a little bit of a peek behind the curtain this week. Okay, the commentaries for this text, one commentary specifically began with, Dear preacher, prepare to pace your office trying to figure out what this text means. It is a notorious passage. So I thought, why not just acknowledge it to you and we'll call the, the preaching text the notorious passage. So says the commentators. And we will find out. So, what we have been seeing in the book of Ecclesiastes is a larger theme of what we'll see here uh, this week as well. The preacher in Ecclesiastes has gathered the congregation and is addressing them about the realities of life under the sun, which means life in a fallen world. And he is asking the question, what is the meaning and significance of life? Can it be found in this? Can it be found in that? And the preacher travels down these various roads as if to take the congregation down the path, asking the question, is ultimate meaning in life to be found in wisdom? Is it to be found in pleasure? Is it to be found in fame? Is it to be found in money? And again and again, the, the answer resounding is, no, it's not to be found in that. And the reason why he's doing that is because these are the things and these are the pathways by which people often try, time attempt to define their life by, to find their ultimate meaning in things or stuff or material possessions or whatever the case might be. The preacher says, it's not that way. If we want to find the ultimate meaning for our life, it must be defined by the maker of our life. So Ecclesiastes is one long roadmap to how not to find meaning in life so that we can find meaning in life. And sometimes he does that in clear ways, other times uh, more uh, difficult. We come this morning to a text very much about a paradox, about life in a fallen world. We're gonna pray before we read it, because I need it, <laughs> because we all need it together. We need God's help to understand the scriptures. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are the God of revelation that reveals yourself both in creation, in the glories of what we can see, in the beauty of this earth. But we thank you, Lord, that more supremely than that, you reveal yourself to us in the scriptures, the written word, whereby we might know truth and find eternal life through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that as we take up this notorious passage, that you would give us grace and help, that you would send your Spirit to bless us, as we take up your word. Come now, Lord, by the power of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And now, 
hear the word of God, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 at verse 15 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in the city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. A woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. So may he write eternal truth on our hearts. Let us take up this notorious passage. The reason why this passage is notorious just to get right to the heart of it, is because this passage deals with a paradox. Paradox, something where at least two things are visible and apparent that seem contradictory, that seem how can both of these things be true, that by observing the paradox it leads us to frustration, saying, why is it this way? The preacher says there's a paradox that I want to address to you. There's a paradox that I want us to think about together. The preacher says, I've been around enough to see this. What is it? Comes out in verse 15. That the righteous perish. And the wicked seem to have prolonged lives. This is a paradox. The preacher says, let's look at it again in verse 15. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes, perishes in his righteousness and a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And that doesn't seem right, right? That's the point. The preacher wants you to have that reaction. Now, wait a second. Something's wrong about this, right? Especially since God promises that those who keep his law and obey his commands would prolong their life. For example, like he did in the Ten Commandments. In the Fifth Commandment, the Lord says, honor your father and mother so that your days may be 
long in the land to which I am giving you. And all throughout the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Deuteronomy, there is this promise that by obedience there is the blessing of long life that comes from a faithful and obedient life. And this promise is frequently repeated. But then again, we think of certain examples that ask us, now, now, now wait a second, is that always true? What about Abel? Abel was most likely a young man when his brother murdered him. Abel dies, who is described as a righteous man, and yet Cain, the unrighteous murderer, by all indications, seems to go on to have a very long life. And progeny, children, multiple generations of children. Or for example, in the New Testament, there's the example of Stephen, who's a deacon in the early church, who as a young man is martyred. He's the first martyr in the early church as a deacon. He's murdered for his faithfulness to Jesus and a younger man. Now we can think of modern examples too, can't we? Of circumstances of lives that seem to be cut off far too young. And we say, but that was a, that was a good person. That was a, that was a wonderful person. Why is their time cut short? The, the news is filled with these stories, right? These bad news of a, of a young life, a bright life that's cut short while while the unrighteous person has a long life in prison, perhaps. This is the paradox that the preacher is bringing to light. And all of this to make us say, it doesn't seem right, it seems wrong, it seems disordered, I'm frustrated with what I see, and if that's the response you have, the preacher is saying, that's, that's what I want you to say. I want you to be dissatisfied and frustrated with life in this fallen world as we see this paradox of the righteous perishing and the wicked having prolonged life. So we're going we're gonna to linger on that for a second. And it's not going to feel comfortable. But we're going to hear also what the psalmist says about this in Psalm 73. Listen to the way the psalmist talks about this paradox. Psalm 73 verse 12 says, Such are the wicked. The wicked are always at ease. The wicked increase their riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all the day long I have been plagued and I am punished every morning. The psalmist enters into this paradox and says the righteous person suffers, the wicked person flourishes. Why? Why? All in vain? Is it all in vain? Ecclesiastes is being written in this time, but as Christians living in this time, you and I face the same temptations. You and I face the same frustrations. Followers of Christ do not always live to a ripe old age. Sincere Christians are not immune to cancer diagnoses. Christian believers are not pardoned from experiencing injury or sickness. If you are a Christian, you are not exempt from disaster or hardship or suffering. And such is the paradox, the preacher says in Ecclesiastes. The righteous may struggle. It seems like the wicked have it so easy. So what should the response be? And the rest of this text is a walking through of how do we make sense of this? How do we reconcile this paradox? What should we say about this? What should we say about the suffering righteous and the exalted wicked. The preacher does not want you to make one of two mistakes. There are two mistakes that you will make as you look at this paradox. The first mistake the preacher wants you to avoid is 
When we look at bad things happening to good people, just to use this language, we see bad things happening to good people, and then we conclude, well, maybe they were actually bad people, not good people. And as a result, we say, well, I don't want that to happen to me. So I'm going to be even better than them. And if I'm better than them, that won't happen to me. That's the first mistake. As we kind of travel down this road, the first ditch that we might fall in is the mistake of thinking that if bad things happen to people who seem righteous, it's because they weren't righteous enough. So I need to become even more righteous than them. That's the first ditch and mistake. On the other side of the road, the other ditch that you're going to fall in as you look at this paradox is the conclusion, well, if it doesn't matter how good I am and I'm going to suffer anyway, why should I care about being good at all? If the wicked are going to flourish, why don't I just toss in with them than being concerned with living as the righteous? That's the other ditch. You see this clearly? There's the paradox that it seems that the righteous suffer and the wicked flourish. So I'm either going to conclude, well, I need to be better than them so I don't suffer, or I'm going to say, forget the whole thing. I'll just toss my lot in with the wicked. And the preacher says, both of those are the wrong answer to this paradox. Both of those answers are the wrong thing here. So the first mistake, we'll look at this in a little more detail here. The first mistake is thinking that we can become this super righteous version so that nothing bad will ever happen to us. The first mistake, look at it in verse 16, the way he responds to the paradox. He gives the direction in verse 16, be not overly righteous and don't make yourself too wise. That's one of those, like, did he really just say that? Statements in the Bible? That's why the book of Ecclesiastes is filled with these very kind of notorious things. What does that mean? Do not be overly righteous and don't make yourself too wise. He, he, he is saying, don't go into this ditch over here. Don't go into this ditch that supposes that if you just make yourself super righteous and to use the key word self-righteous, will just be exempt from all these things. That's not the way. The other ditch there on the other side would be to just give up altogether. Verse 17 is where he says, don't do that. Verse 17, be not overly wicked either. Verse 17, neither a fool. Why should you die before your time? So do you notice the preacher just said literally in verse 16, look, don't be too righteous. Don't be too wise. Don't be too righteous. And on the other hand, don't be too wicked. Right? He's pointing out both ditches. So you say, well, how much righteous is the right amount? And how much wisdom is the right amount? If I'm not supposed to go toss my lot in totally with the wicked, and if I'm not supposed to be too righteous, what does it look like to, to kind of go down the middle and hit this in the right way? And he says in verse 18, here's what it looks like. Here's how you go the middle road and avoid both ditches. Verse 18, it is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. And the both of them is the one of the two ditches that we might fall into. So as we try to navigate life under the sun, as we try to navigate this fallen world in which we identify there's this paradox that bad things seem to happen to good people, the answer is not, well, I don't go towards self-righteousness, and the answer is not toss my lot in totally with the wicked. As he says in 
Verse 20, it's not, it's not like you can become super righteous. It's not possible. Verse 20 says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Meaning, you'll never be able to come so righteous. You'll never be able to come so self-righteous that you'll be exempt from these things. Another way of putting this is putting it the way Jesus puts it. Jesus says in Matthew 5.20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. Because the mistake over here is thinking, I need to be self-righteous. I need to be so righteous within myself. I need to boast in myself and boast in my pride and boast in my spiritual accomplishments. And Jesus says, no, that's, that's not the way. That's the way of the scribes and Pharisees. That's the showy self-righteousness that is not the way to please God. We cannot go that direction and we cannot pursue the wickedness. The way forward, as verse 18 says, is to fear God, walk rightly, and avoid both mistakes. So that's, that's the, the answer to the paradox. But then the preacher wants to go a little bit deeper. And he says, okay, fine. But I want to know why is it this way? Why is it this way? And it's just at this moment that I hope that you can identify with the preacher here a little bit. Have you ever, when facing a circumstance in life, said, but why? Why? Not, not, not in a kind of a perfunctory, surface level explanation. No, 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 no. Sit down and tell me why. I want a full explanation to why it is, using this paradox as an example, why it is the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. I demand to have an answer. So the preacher says, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to chase this road to the end and get a conclusion, right? So in verse 25, he says, I turn my heart to know. And I'm going to search this out. And I'm going to seek out wisdom and the scheme of things to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. In other words, I'm going to make sense of this. I'm going to come to the ultimate conclusion as to why it is the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. Why is it this way? What should we make of all of it? What would satisfy you? What answers would there be to that question that would make you say, oh, okay, never mind. I'm satisfied with those answers to this paradox. Well, maybe the preacher will give you the answer that you're satisfied with. Maybe not. Let's find out. Because he gives four answers. Kind of. He gives four answers to how we make sense of all this. The first one comes in verse 26. He says, and I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Uh, the, 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 the feminine example here is a personification of foolishness. That, that, that foolishness is as a woman grabbing hold of me to keep me, to bind me, to, to put me in fetters, to chain me from pleasing God. And, and I'm being pursued by this, but the preacher says, no, it's possible to escape. The sinner, at the end of verse 26, is taken by her, but his point of emphasis is that the righteous person escapes. As we think about, as we think about life in this fallen world, as we think about the struggle of sin, as we think about these uh, notorious paradoxes, he says, first of all, what you need to know is that it's possible for you to not be consumed by unrighteousness. 
It's possible for you to not be taken in by sin. It's possible for you to escape the allures and entrapments of unrighteousness. That is to say, it's possible to say no to sin in this fallen world. It's possible to please God in the pursuit of holiness. So his, his first answer to why is life in this fallen world so complicated and why do these paradoxes exist, his first answer is to say, well... It's not as if you're helpless. It's possible for you to come out from that. It's possible for you to say no. That's the first answer. The second answer comes in verses 27 and 29. Or sorry, 27 and 28. Verse 27, behold, this is what I found. Right? He keeps on saying, here's what I find, here's what I find. Verse 27, behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, meaning how to figure it all out. Verse 28, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. His second answer is that he doesn't have the answer. His second answer is that I tried to figure it out. I tried to find the scheme of things, meaning I tried to make sense of it all, but I, I can't. And my second answer is that I don't have the answer. And you say, that's not an answer. And the preacher says, yes, it is, actually. Why? Because as you learn about life in a fallen world, as you learn about life in this world in which there are paradoxes that you don't understand, one of the most important things to understand is that because you're not God, there will simply be things to which you will not have an answer. Are you content with that? We must learn to be content with that. The preacher says, I can't make sense of this paradox. I'm looking to make sense of it by human wisdom. I'm looking to understand the scheme, but there is not a good natural explanation for why the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. He says, there's actually not an answer. And what we should draw from that is the conclusion that faithfulness and, in the words of verse 18, fearing God in this fallen world means understanding there are things that we must not demand an answer from God for. And isn't that a hard lesson, actually? There are things that you as a Christian believer must learn to not demand an answer from God for. The second answer is that there is sometimes no answer. The third, though, comes in the second half of verse 28. Verse 28, which my soul has sought repeatedly but I have not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Second half of verse 28, the third answer is that there's not many. In fact, there's hardly any. The preacher is using a hyperbole. It's an exaggerated language. And, and don't mistake the fact that he's being sexist as to say, well, there's just one man but no woman. He is using a hyperbole as to say, of all people on earth as represented by the thousand, there's only one, meaning... Literally almost no one. Literally almost no one is totally righteous. There are no upright persons. Only one among a thousand. We'll come back to that, though, because there is one. That's the point. The third answer is that among supposed righteous people, there's actually only one. And the fourth answer comes in the final part in verse 29, finding C... This I have found alone, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the fourth answer. 
The fourth answer, which is really the point of emphasis here, is that in this paradoxical fallen world in which there are things that I don't understand, for example, the righteous suffering and the wicked prospering, I'm giving these answers, and the preacher says, but I come to this final one there in verse 29, that, see, this alone I found, that God made man upright. God made man upright. That is to say, whose fault is all this? Right? The preacher is frustrated with life in this fallen world, but the, you have to step back and ask the question, why is the world fallen? Verse 29 says, God made man upright, but they, meaning humanity, they have sought out many schemes. Meaning there is no end to the scheming of the disobedience of sin of Adam and the Adam that lives in us by nature of the flesh to scheme unrighteousness, to scheme disobedience, to scheme sin rather than live in the fear of God. And he's saying, look, this isn't God's fault. If you're so frustrated with it, make sure you're frustrated with the right person. God is not to blame for the lack of upright persons in the world because he made humans upright. And that answer doesn't seem to solve the problem, though, except we know the bigger answer. So just pause for a moment and, and come up to 30,000 feet in this passage, this notorious passage. He's saying the world is hard and there are things that don't make sense, right? Like this example. But you can plug in other examples, and you, you have them. You can think of circumstances and situations that make you say, this is wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong, right? So you can go beyond just the preacher's illustration here and walk with him down the path. What should you think of this? Well... One, it's possible for you to live righteously in this fallen world. It's possible for you to just say no to sin, number one. Two, sometimes there's no answer. Three, but there is one righteous person. Four, it's not God's fault. See how this is leading us somewhere? It's leading us to our grand story of redemption. This is what it's doing. It takes us back to the original story of the scriptures that God made Adam in the garden upright and by Adam's scheming scheming disobedience to be unsatisfied with God's rule in the world rather demanding no I know better and I know the way to greater glory. I know the way to greater pleasure and happiness. I'll go my own way. That has created this paradoxical fallen world in which we live and things don't appear to make sense and the only way to make any sense of it in a reasonable way is to find that one righteous man who is none other of course the Lord Jesus himself right now I thought about how can we how can we in a very eloquent way explain all this but I ran out of eloquence, so I came up with this. Imagine you're a parent. Well, you don't have to imagine very hard for that, right? Imagine you're a parent who looks at their child and says, Look, I didn't make this mess. You clean it up. Right now, for some of us with older children, we say, no, like, actually, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to teach them to clean up their messes, right? Pick up your room, right? Wash your face, whatever. No, no, no. Don't imagine the illustration with your 16-year-old in a dirty room. Imagine the illustration with your one-year-old with marinara sauce all over their face, right? And stuff all over the kitchen. Your white kitchen cabinets. 
And you look at that one-year-old and you say, I didn't make this mess. You do it. You fix it. You clean it up. To your one-year-old, you say, what kind of parent is that? What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that our Heavenly Father looks upon his errant, wayward, scheming children and doesn't say, you made this mess. You fix it. No, he says, you made this mess, didn't you? I'll fix it. I'll fix this broken world in which you live, in which things don't make sense, in which things pain your hearts, in which there is death and sorrow that you created. I'll fix it. And he enters into it by way of his son, the one righteous man for us and for our salvation, to make this world make any sense. Because without him, it just doesn't. It just doesn't. To clean up our mess, our sin, our foolishness. So therefore, this great, notorious passage that introduces such paradoxes to us is actually, at the end, quite simple. Because it's just the good news of the gospel that we cherish so deeply that Christ has come in to fix our mess. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice at the good news of the gospel that that even though we, we suffer the weight and penalty of the fall, even though we suffer the burden of the curse and we scheme and come up with ways to disobey you, we thank you that nevertheless it's possible for us through Christ to have new life and forgiveness and the pursuit of righteousness so as to please you and live in the fear of you to revere you and honor you and worship you. Father, I just pray that you would help us understand this. I pray that you would help us to navigate this world that seems so often to not make sense and find the wisdom and righteousness of Jesus Christ in the midst of it. And now, Father, as we prepare our hearts to to come to the table, I pray, Lord, that that gospel message would be so clear to us and so lovely that we would celebrate it both through faith and rejoicing. Lord, bless this now to us, we pray. In the strong name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.